Morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine here on Channel Africa from an African perspective. I'm Kumbero Munjerere. Coming up on the show this hour, former U.S. President Donald Trump acquitted in impeachment trial. South Africa's ruling ANC fails to persuade former President Jacob Zuma to appear before the State Capture Commission. In economics, in economics statistics, South Africa releases production data for the mining sector. And in sports, Orlando Pirates beat joining Galaxy in CAF Confederation Cup. All these stories coming up on the show, but first the news with N. Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good morning, I'm Anne Musa. At least 10 people have died during ethnic clashes that began at a busy market in the Nigerian city of Ibadan in Oyo State. The governor of the southwestern state has imposed a dusk-to-dawn curfew to contain the violence in the city. It began after a wheelbarrow pusher believed to be from the ethnic Kosa group allegedly hit and killed a Yoruba man during an altercation. Police told the BBC that officers were still gathering casualty details but had intensified patrols in that area. The health ministry in Guinea says at least four people have died of Ebola and the first cases of the disease in the country for over four years. 11,000 people were killed by Ebola across West Africa between 2013 and 2016. The BBC's Julian Bedford reports. The first known victim of the latest outbreak was a nurse from the southeast of the country. Eight people who attended her funeral at the beginning of February became infected and three have died. Guinea's health minister, Jemi Lamar, has said he's deeply concerned about the resurgence of the virus, but infrastructure put in place during the last outbreak should ensure the disease can be better contained this time round. And treatments for Ebola have greatly improved, with the vaccine having been successfully used in recent outbreaks in the Democratic Republic of Congo. 1,744 new coronavirus infections have been recorded in South Africa in the last 24-hour cycle, bringing the cumulative number of cases to 1,491,807. The health department says 78 more people have succumbed to the COVID-19-related complications, putting the national death toll at 47,800 47,899. Meanwhile, Dr. Ridwan, a senior researcher at the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, says scientific data indicates that South Africa has passed the second wave of the coronavirus. This number has declined sufficiently well below the threshold um, of um, 15% to indicate that we have surpassed the second wave. Um, Remember, at the peak of the second wave, the maximum uh, seven-day average is around 19,000 cases per day. So at the moment, we're about 12% of that figure. South Africa's Basic Education Minister Angie Mutsecha says her department has put all measures in place for the reopening of schools this morning. She made the announcement on Sunday. Schools were initially supposed to reopen for learners on the 27th of last month, but this was delayed by two weeks due to the second wave of coronavirus infections. The department has issued a new school calendar last week, which could help to give schools 40 weeks of learning and teaching during this academic year. 
year, Mutsekha says the health and safety of teachers and learners remains her department's top priority. We've also amended our school calendar for 2021, as published by the department, confirming that tomorrow, the 15th of February, will be the first day for public schooling in 2021. And from the outset, we want to emphasize that the health and safety of our teachers, of our learners, and our staff remains our top priority. And finally, a senior member of the World Health Organization mission to China that is investigating the origins of COVID-19 has defended the credibility of its work despite mounting criticism. U.S. officials expressed deep concern over the independence of the mission, the BBC's Emergent Folks reports. Today, Professor John Watson sought to allay doubts, telling the BBC the China trip was the first step in a long process. For now, he said there were a number of hypotheses about the origins of the virus, the most likely that it moved from one animal to an intermediate animal host and from there to humans. But the theory that it originated in a laboratory or escaped from one has not been ruled out. Neither has the possibility that frozen meat could have played a role in transmitting the virus to humans. That's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. This is Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Political differences between Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta and his deputy William Ruto came to the fore again on Friday when at a political rally Kenyatta dared Ruto and his allies to resign if they are not satisfied with the current administration. Without mentioning names, Kenyatta told a crowd of supporters that one cannot continue to insult people while also taking credit for the government's success. Kenyatta and Ruto fell out following the decision by the Kenyan head of state to mend fences with opposition leader Raila Odinga. Media reports on Friday indicated that Ruto's allies were planning a mass walkout from the ruling Jubilee Party. Sarah Kimani reports. It's over a year to the next general elections in Kenya, but with President Kenyatta not vying for the presidency, the race to succeed him is on. On the one hand, his deputy William Ruto is angling to succeed him. On the other hand, his former Prime Minister Raila Odinga, who crossed ranks with Kenyatta in March 2018 and is working with him to push for constitutional reforms ahead of the elections. This has angered Ruto. Wakati Uhuru Kenyatta alikuwa anahitaji rafiki wa kusimama na yeye. When Uhuru Kenyatta needed a friend, some said he has a case at the International Criminal Court. Others said he's not worthy because his father was once president. Lakini mimi nilisimama na yeye wakati alikuwa anahitaji rafiki. When Uhuru Kenyatta needed a friend to stand with him, at the critical moment, we are the people who stood with him. Kenyatta, however, says Ruto and his allies should resign if they are not satisfied with his leadership. 
You can't say on the one hand the government is bad and on the other say it is good. If you see its goodness, then stay. If you say it is bad, then leave. Let those who love it stay on. While Odinga remains Kenyatta's topmost defender, Ruto now seems to lead an opposition against his boss, but still within the ruling Jubilee Party. Sarah Kemani, SBC News, Kenya. Now, attempts by South Africa's ruling ANC's top leadership to persuade former President Jacob Zuma to appear before the State Capture Commission may prove, may prove fruitless. High on the party's NEC meeting agenda this past weekend has been the implications of Zuma's decision not to appear before the commission this week. The decision is in breach of a summons issued by the commission for Zuma to appear a constitutional court ruling instructing him to do so and the ANC's own resolution that members cooperate with the Zondo Commission. Bosi Chimombe reports. Umkonto Wesizwe Military Veterans President Kibima Patswe says former President Jacob Zuma will be a no-show at the State Capture Commission on Monday. The MKMVA visited Zuma on Thursday last week at his Nkandla home where Zuma briefed them about his concern that the Constitutional Court's ruling that he appear before the Commission is biased and therefore he will not comply. Here's Mapatswe. Meanwhile, the ANC's top leadership this weekend was expected to weigh in on the matter. The party had earlier resolved to support the commission and instructed members to cooperate with it. ANC spokesperson Pulemabe. There is a standing resolution of the National Executive Committee that officials must engage uh, with former President Jacob Zuma. So, so, so that, that, that decision is there. It really depends on their diaries. You know, and uh, if they are Issues, including those that are out in the public, that officials uh, may want discussed or seek some uh, uh, resolve on, they will effectively do that when within that space. But there is a decision of the NEC that officials must engage with the former President Jacob Zuma. It's really a matter of diaries. Earlier last week, the ANC in Zuma's home province of KwaZulu-Natal met with the former president. Provincial Secretary Mdumisen Ntuli said that the stalemate between Zuma and the Commission had grave implications. Our concern is that uh, sooner than later, the arrest of the former president will soon be appropriated to either the sitting president of the ANC or some of the leaders of the ANC. And when that happens, divisions in the ANC will run deep. And the NC will lose its ability to lead our people towards the creation of a national democratic society. So the reason why we're standing up as a province was because we're worried about the future of our country. For his part, President Sarah Ramaphosa, when quizzed by journalists at the home of the late struggle stalwart Rebecca Kotane 
almost two weeks ago, said Zuma must not be rushed into making a decision on the matter. And I would like to say, let's give former President Jacob Zuma time and space to think about this and uh, also to hear what other people are saying. And in giving consideration to this, I'm sure that he will come to a conclusion. So I'm prepared to leave it there. And of course, we haven't really discussed it in the ANC, uh, which is something that we will do. On Monday morning, the nation will find out whether efforts by the ANC to persuade Zuma to appear have succeeded. For its part, the commission has stated that should Zuma act in breach of its summons and in contempt of the order of the Constitutional Court, it will then announce what further action it will take. And that report by Busi Chumombe. Now on Sunday, Zimbabweans commemorated the life of the late Morgan Tsangirai, who died three years ago. Tsangirai, known for his selfless leadership, will be remembered most for agreeing to create a government of national unity in 2009, although he was the winner of elections. Tsangirai, a veteran trade unionist, has been described even by those in the ruling ZANU-PF as a true nationalist and democrat who fought for social justice. Simon Michema reports from Harare. Zimbabweans on Sunday commemorated the life of the late Morgan Changrai, who died three years ago. While some were commemorating St. Valentine's Day, in Zimbabwe it was all about a man who changed the politics of the opposition after he successfully challenged Robert Mugabe. From the inception of his movement for democratic change, MDC, in 1999, scores of party supporters were killed and that resulted in democratic nations such as the United Nations of America and the United Kingdom imposing sanctions against few ZANU-PF individuals. Changrai went on to win the 2008 polls against Robert Mugabe, a historic feat that led to persecution of some MDC supporters and later the formation of the unity government. Channel Africa spoke to the Secretary General of the Zimbabwe Congress of Trade Unions, ZCTU, Jafet Moyo, who described Changrai as follows. The man was a dedicated person to his duty from the time we met in the labor movement up to the time uh, he joined politics and um, uh, fought um, tirelessly tirelessly to democratize uh, Zimbabwe. He fought for uh, Zimbabwe to be a better country to live in. He fought for the poor. He fought for the rich. Uh, he looked for, uh, he looked upon the interest of both the poor and the rich. Changrai was a selfless man and wanted every citizen to live a good life, Moyo said. I think people can draw a lot from uh, his selflessness, his dedication, that he gave his life for the majority of people. Uh, the reason why he then accepted to be a prime minister, play second fiddle to ZANU-PF, when actually he had won the elections, he looked at the suffering of the people then, uh, remember the inflation that was um, ravaging 
the nation uh, around 2008. So he went into the inclusive government because uh, people were starving. He wanted to save the people. Uh, otherwise, uh, himself, if he was looking at himself, uh, probably he could have allowed uh, uh, people to die. Although some say Changirai could have died a bitter man because of his failure to topple Robert Mugabe, Moyo argued that Changirai achieved his goals as today the democratic spaces exist, though not being respected. So he was a person who believed in uh, social justice. Uh, he's a person who believed that uh, people should uh, be treated the same. But we also remember him for... Uh, his leadership in the region. Uh, we remember that uh, Mugen Swangrai was uh, once um, uh, the leader of Satuk. Uh, so he led workers uh, in the region, but he was very respected also internationally uh, at the ITUC level. Uh, Mugen Swangrai was well known for fighting tirelessly for the working class. Clifford Tlachwayo, a youth leader in the MDC Alliance, who joined politics as a university student leader, said Changrai left a huge void in the country's political arena. Today, the whole world commemorates and celebrates the legacy of love, the legacy of true fighting, a legacy of true unionism. President Morgan Richard Changrai was a, a man of the people. He was a champion of peace, a doyon of democracy, a man who loves uh, the people. He was a mentor, he was a friend, he was a father, he was a leader to many. Meanwhile, ordinary Zimbabweans are bemoaning the death of Tsangrai as now the opposition party appears to have lost its footing and direction the very day he was buried. In Arare, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Mujewa. Now, the second Senate impeachment trial of former U.S. President Donald Trump has ended in his acquittal on the charge of incitement of insurrection, but not without seven Republican senators joining the Democratic majority to convict. In a vote ending with 57 to convict and 43 to acquit, the eyes fell short of the threshold to convict. The former president stood accused of violating his oath of office by making false claims about the outcome of last November's presidential election while aging on his supporters into a dramatic crescendo that saw the capital invaded. But a majority of Republican senators felt they had no jurisdiction to convict because Trump Trump was now a private citizen and therefore no longer impeachable. Sherwin Bryce-Bees has more. The acquittal comes less than a week into the Senate trial and over a month after the attack on the United States Congress on January 6th that was in session affirming the presidential election win of President Joe Biden. Listen to Patrick Leahy, President Pro Tempore of the Senate, who presided over the trial. The yeas are 57, the nays are 43, uh, two-thirds of the senators present not having voted guilty, 
The Senate judges that the respondent, Donald John Trump, former President of the United States, is not guilty as charged in the article of impeachment. And so it was that Donald Trump escaped conviction in no less than two impeachment trials, with 43 Republicans voting to acquit, including the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who took to the floor after his not guilty vote to eviscerate the former president for his role in inciting the mob. They did this because they'd been fed wild falsehoods by the most powerful man on earth. Because he was angry, he lost an election. Former President Trump's actions preceded the riot were a disgraceful, disgraceful dereliction of duty. There's no question, none, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it. The people who stormed this building believed they were acting on the wishes and instructions of their president. And having that belief was a foreseeable consequence of the growing crescendo of false statements, conspiracy theories, and reckless hyperbole, which the defeated president kept shouting into the largest megaphone on planet Earth. McConnell warned that the former president could still be held criminally liable for his actions while in office, as Democrats rebuked Republicans for what they called hypocrisy in preventing a conviction. Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. This was the most egregious violation of the presidential oath of office and a textbook example, a classic example of an impeachable offense worthy of the Constitution's most severe remedy. In response to the incontrovertible fact of Donald Trump's guilt, the Senate was subject to a feeble and sometimes incomprehensible defense of the former president. Unable to dispute the case on the merits, the former president's counsel treated us to partisan vitriol, false equivalents, and outright falsehoods. We heard the roundly debunked jurisdictional argument that the Senate cannot try a former official, a position that would mean that any president could simply resign to avoid accountability for an impeachable offense, a position which in effect would render the Senate powerless to ever enforce the disqualification clause in the Constitution. The Senate decision closing this chapter on the Trump presidency, but leaves open the possibility that he could seek elected office in the future including running for president again. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. Now, Indian police on Saturday arrested a 22-year-old environmental activist for creating a guide to the ongoing protests by farmers that was treated by Greta Thunberg in early February. The activist was remanded in custody until a court hearing in five days' time. Rana Sen has more. The 22-year-old was picked up from far away Bangalore city in southern India and brought to Delhi, where she was produced before a judge on Sunday. Her followers and sympathizers such as Vinod staged a street protest in Ravi's hometown to express solidarity with the young activist. 
We clearly want to indicate that you know the investigation must go on and must be free and fair. But a young student who is at the age of 21 should be treated with more respect. How can a lady, a young lady from Bangalore, be taken and lifted to Delhi overnight like this? It's extremely ridiculous. And over the past few years and months, we've been seeing the handling of Delhi police and it has entered Bangalore now. This is extremely disappointing. We're out of words, in fact. And as the court in Delhi allowed the police to question the woman over the next five days, Iqbal Singh Lalpura, a spokesman of India's ruling BJP party, said he was certain the investigators would act fairly. They, it is the duty of the police to investigate the case in a free and fair manner. All people are innocent till they are proved to be criminals. So you have to have evidence to prove the guilt of a person to arrest a person, you have to have some evidence. Let there not be media defense in favor of a person who has been charged or arrested by the police. The charges against her were serious enough and could impact her prospects of bail later this week, some legal experts said. The farmers rampage last month at Delhi's iconic Red Fort left at least 400 police officers injured and raised questions over the intent of the farmers blocking highways to the capital city since November. Bail is given on the basis of the kind of charges, the international conspiracy. Yes, there are certain international bail parameters, but this case is far too serious. It involves sedition, it involves uh, 153A, promoting hatred among societies and conspiracy. And therefore, police custody is required to unearth the entire evidence and the chain. Therefore, this has been given. It is not, she will come out if the court thinks. That was Desh Ratan Nigam, a prominent advocate who believed Ravi would get a fair trial for whatever she has or not done. That report by Rana Sen. Now more than 15 million people in the United Kingdom have now had their first coronavirus vaccine in what Prime Minister Boris Johnson described as a significant milestone. The rollout is now being expanded to over 65s and the clinically vulnerable. The vaccine program is seen as one of few successes in the government's handling of a pandemic that has left the country of about 67 million people with a higher death toll and worse economic damage than many others. Jean Beva reports from Bristol. Day after day, week after week, they keep coming through the doors of this mass vaccination centre in southwest England. In January, Ashton Gates Stadium was transformed into one of the seven key hubs where vaccines would be administered. There are now more than one and a half thousand vaccination sites of all different sizes across England. The vials may be small, but what they offer is huge. Linda Liu is a patient here and just received the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's relief. Of course it's relief. I just wish everybody else could have it. I feel guilty. To be honest, it's a bit of guilt today. <laughs> Only 20 miles separates Britain from France, but the country's vaccination rates are a long way apart. Slow to start and hampered by bureaucracy, then there were supply issues, which briefly sparked a dramatic war of words between Brussels and London and the threat of withholding vaccine exports. 
Other European countries are faring slightly better than France, but the UK has surged ahead of the EU in the number of doses per 100 people. Soon after the pandemic was declared, the UK spent vast sums of money on untested vaccines. World-leading experts advised the government to hedge their bets and place huge orders with multiple manufacturers. Whereas 27 member states all working collectively meant decision-making in the EU was slower. Here's President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. In the fight against the virus, we are still not where we want to be. We were late to authorize. We were too optimistic when it came to massive production. And perhaps we were too confident that what we ordered would be delivered on time. Frustrated by the pace of the European rollout, Hungary broke ranks in early February and unilaterally approved Russia's Sputnik vaccine for use. Some have claimed Brexit allowed the UK to act quickly, but experts disagree. Midge Rahman is from the Eurasia Group. The whole process underpinning the government's vaccine strategy was much more streamlined, much more efficient. They had a three to four month head start on everything continental Europe has done. And as such, the time frame for easing restrictions is, is much more accelerated than that in continental Europe. It's not really a, on the back of Brexit. It's more about speedy decision making and the way the UK thinks about vaccine procurement versus those in Europe. If the pace can be kept up, the initial target of vaccinating the entire UK by the autumn now looks not only possible, but beatable. EU leaders say they have learned a great deal and have promised improvements as the rollout continues. The concern now is on limiting the arrival of new coronavirus variants and developing vaccines and vaccination strategies that can change with the virus. John Beaver, Bristol. You are listening to Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa from an African perspective. It is now time for the news headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good morning, I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, 11 people have been killed during separ- uh, separatist assaults in the southern city of Lubumbashi in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The Commission of Inquiry into State Capture is expected to resume with the testimony of former South African President Jacob Zuma. While the Commission has summoned Zuma to testify before it, Zuma has indicated that he will not comply. And Western diplomats in Myanmar have warned the generals who have seized power two weeks ago that the world is watching and have warned them not to use violence against crowds protesting against the coup. Those are the, are the stories making headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. You are listening to Africa Rise and Shine here on Channel Africa. We are broadcasting from an African perspective. I am Kumbero Munjerere. Good morning. 
Sexual misconduct and assault know no boundaries and affect all genders and communities around the globe, including the Uber community. With this in mind, the non-profit organization NISA Institute for Women's Development has joined forces with Uber to drive awareness, education and prevention among driver partners and riders. The partnership seeks to provide clear guidance on what is appropriate or not and promote safety and respectful respectful interactions within the community. Well, for more on this, I'm joined on the line by NISA spokesperson Sima Adia. Uh, good morning, Sima, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, good morning. How are you? I am well, I'm well. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Now, talk to us about this partnership. How did it come about and uh, what are you hoping to achieve through this partnership with Uber? Okay, so um, Nisa and Uber um, have engaged in a partnership um, in order to look at a prevention initiative, um, to look at educating um, drivers and riders, both alike, so that there's a greater understanding um, and a lot of education, which can play a central role in enabling women and children to live in a world free of violence and discrimination. So um, I think it was Uber who um, looked at what um, looked at some of the issues that were affecting the community, um, both riders and drivers on that platform, and engaged NISA on this initiative. So NISA has been um, an organization that has been working in the sector for over 26 years now. It's a non-profit, non-governmental organization opposed to all forms of oppression, exploitation, and violence against women. And we particularly focus on the prevention of uh, gender-based violence prevention and uh, the empowerment of women. Um, And so um, Uber uh, came to us um, for assistance in this type of work. Sure. Um, We looked at the sexual misconduct and assault um, when we spoke to both drivers, drivers, riders, and their staff members. Um, to just get a better understanding of what it was like um, on the platform Um, because every community and every situation is different and so the prevention initiative has to be very structured um, to suit the type of target audience. Um, And so, you know, um, it's it's quite general um, and and the issues that affect that community affect... um, the community, the wider community as well. So there's sure. a lot. Uh, so there's a lot of education that happens around sexual misconduct and assault, which has no boundaries and affects all genders and communities around the globe, um, including the Uber community. Um, now, now, what is the narrative uh, of a GBV that uh, you would like to change in the African context? So the, this initiative was specifically focused on the South African context, um, but we are looking to work with Uber to see how best um, it can be rolled out to the general Uber community um, because they, they are a global um, organization, but we do have to take into account uh, the local context and the local nuances in terms of gender-based violence. 
Um, but um, specifically this, this particular one was it has uh, a lot of educational videos which feature uh, tips and information about respecting privacy, personal space, um, conversational boundaries, sexual misconduct. Often what is acceptable in one culture is not acceptable in, in other cultures. So maybe um, complimenting a woman on how she looks might be perceived as being complementary to one uh, culture, but in another culture, in another context, it's, it's perceived as being um, sexually inappropriate. Sure. So, yes. So we got to take into consideration all of these nuances in different contexts um, when we do these kinds of initiatives. But, Ma- um, yes. Now, this is a great initiative, Sima. In your view, what else is needed to end and prevent violence against women and girls on the continent? So, you know, um, it's not going to end by by doing one initiative. We need to ensure that there's education that's going around all the time. If you think about it and you look at Coca-Cola or... Um, it, there's this constant marketing, there's constant information. Um, and so there's a definite need for constant information, education, um, in order for the messages and the information to really be looked at um, and thought about so as to bring about changes in both thought, behavior, um, <clears throat> and attitude. Because if there isn't, um, all of the knowledge, et cetera, that you put out there, um, if it's once off, it's not going to really make a difference. And so that's why this initiative with Uber is um, a- an exciting one that Nisa has embarked on because they really are committed. They haven't only just um, committed in one way in terms of education, but they are also educating their drivers not only around sexual misconduct, but around domestic violence and how to... Um, uh, we've engaged in uh, a partnership that is allowing um, the well um, survivors across sure. the country to um, enable them to to reach a place of safety. Um, so, I mean, Uber has really gone above and beyond. I I think. And just finally, Sima, because we are running out of time, do you get a sense that there is a political will uh, to tackle this problem head on? Um, you know, I, I would like to say that there is political will. Um, there's definitely um, a better line of communication that's open. Um Currently, and I can only speak for the South African context, but um, yes, I I would say that there is political will, but it has to be across the board. You know, it can't be political will from one person and then it fizzles out. So we'll just have to wait and see how that plays out um, as it comes to the ground. But yes. All right, Sima, unfortunately, we have run out of time. All the best with this initiative, and uh, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, that's Sima Dia, spokesperson for South Africa-based NGO, NISA Institute for Women's Development. 
across the globe every second there's always a breaking story Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa Reporting for Channel Africa I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned giving you the whole picture every time George Muhango Channel Africa Blantyre Reporting for Channel Africa this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. This is Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Traditional healers in South African town of Kimberley have welcomed with uneasiness the announcement that they will receive the COVID-19 vaccine as part of the cohort of frontline workers. The healers say although they welcome the vaccine, they have some issues with government and the Department of Health that need to be ironed out before they can take the vaccine. Neobodumela reports. Traditional healers in Kimberley say they have misgivings about the South African government's decision to include them as frontline workers. The decision will see them as some of the first in the country to take the COVID-19 vaccine. They accuse the government of sidelining them when the virus hit South African shores and further maligning them when solutions were sought on how to treat symptoms of the virus. Now they are seeking answers. I wouldn't mind taking it, but I would appreciate if they call us in and explain to us as health practitioners, what does this vaccine entail? What is the makeup of this vaccine? So that when we also treat our patients, it shouldn't be medication that would clash. It should complement each other. I'm not going to take it because it's not fair. It means I will be betraying my ancestors because I tried to also consult to be a helping hand and I was not regarded. So why should I now take a vaccine into consideration? Provincial Health Department spokesperson Lebohang Majaha says consultations with traditional healers will be done during the coming days. We have been in consultation with all our relevant stakeholders, especially those in the health sector, since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. This coming week, we will once more meet all our relevant stakeholders just to appraise them on the COVID-19 vaccine rollout plan within the next few days and weeks within our province. The traditional healers insist that although they are apprehensive about the vaccine, they will not stop any of their clients from getting the jab. I'm Neobudumela. In Kimberley. Now, the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is safe, but it is advising countries that have a significant circulation of the 501.V2 COVID-19 variant discovered in South Africa to make preparations to roll out other jabs instead. However, this contradicts World Health Organization recommendations. The WHO says countries which are dealing with new variants should press ahead with the Oxford vaccine because it's likely to prevent severe disease, hospitalizations, and deaths. The Africa CDC says South Africa's decision to pause its use of Oxford AstraZeneca doses will not change the continent's plans to procure the vaccine as planned. It is due to secure at least 600 million vaccine doses, including Oxford AstraZeneca. Coletta Wanjohi reports from Addis Ababa. 
Seven countries in Africa, including South Africa, have reported cases of the new 501YV2 COVID-19 strain. South Africa has paused its rollout of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine because of a small study suggesting it offers only minimal protection against mild and moderate disease from the variant discovered in the country. That has prompted the Africa CDC to put out new guidelines. Dr. John Nkengason is the director of the Africa CDC. For countries that have reported the circulation of the SARS-CoV-2 uh, variant, uh, we recommend the acceleration of their preparedness to introduce other, uh, uh, all vaccines that have received emergency use authorization or approval by the regulatory authorities. Consideration should be given to the effectiveness of the vaccine against the, the variant, that is the N501V2 variant, or any other circulating uh, SARS-CoV-2 variants in the country. The WHO Strategic Advisory Group of Experts on Immunization, however, recommends the Oxford vaccine should still be used in such countries. Dr. Catherine O'Brien is the Director of Immunization, Vaccines and Biologicals at the WHO. There is a plausible expectation that the vaccine will have uh, impact against efficacy against severe disease, albeit we don't have the evidence in hand, but there's plausibility for that um, being the case. The Africa CDC says the concern about efficacy against mild and moderate disease caused by the South Africa discovered variant will not dictate the use of AstraZeneca vaccine across the whole continent. It says AstraZeneca doses will be used to begin vaccinating health workers in Africa in the next few weeks after a private purchase by Africa's telecom giant, MTN Group. Dr. John Nkengason is the director of the Africa CDC. The 7 million uh, vaccines that uh, the MTN had uh, supported through the 25 million donations that they gave were all targeting the AstraZeneca vaccine. And those vaccines will be begin to be distributed in the coming uh, uh, two weeks or so. And we'll, still, we'll move ahead with that plan. And of course, uh, make sure that uh, we target countries that um, are not have not reported the, those variants. Uh, again, uh, in, it, we need to do this quickly and vaccinate quickly to arrest this uh, the spread of this uh, variant. So that plan will still go move forward. And this is a, a good vaccine without the variant. And the variant will only impact if, if, if it's, the variant is overwhelming in, in, in the country. So I think that is our recommendation. The Africa CDC is determined to press ahead with more purchasing of the vaccine, with 20 countries already signing up for an early procurement of doses. And that report by Coletta Wanjohi. It is now time for the latest economic news with Nosi Zuma. Thank you, Kumbero. Good morning. Climate activists are warning that central banks are taking a risky gamble with their strategies for addressing the financial risk from global warming. According to a study by All Change International and Reclaim Finance, the scenarios being used to guide the transition to a carbon-neutral economy are based towards temperatures that are too high and fossil fuel phase-outs that are too slow. The lobby groups say downplaying of the speed and depths of the necessary energy 
energy shifts risk perpetuating the status quo for use of fossil fuels. The warning is based on scenarios by the network of greening the financial system, a group of 83 central banks and supervisors from around the world. After nearly six months without a leader, the World Trade Organization looks set to appoint Nigeria's Ngozi Okonjo-Luela as its first female and first African leader on Monday. Dr. Okonjo-Luela used to be Nigeria's finance minister. She is not a trade expert but says she can be a clear set of eyes for the global trade body. Some truck drivers say they are anticipating an even worse traffic backlog at the Baybridge border post in Limpopo province in South Africa than occurred in December if additional personnel is not added at land ports of entry when they open to all traffic on Monday. Land ports of entry countrywide were closed to curb the spread of the coronavirus as the second wave of infections hit South Africa. Passenger numbers at the Dubai International Airport slumped by 70% to 25.9% last year as the COVID-19 pandemic crippled the travel industry. Operations at the airport that serves as the hub for Emirates Airline were reduced significantly for several months under government travel restrictions before Dubai reopened to overseas visitors in July. The industry experts say it will take years to recover with restrictions across the world continuing to hit demand globally. State-owned Dubai airports in a statement said Dubai International handled 183,993,000 flights in 2020, down 51.4%, while the average number of passengers per flight fell 20.3% to 188. The airport handled 1.9 million tons of cargo, down 23.2% year-on-year. According to industry group airport Council International, Dubai was the world's fourth busiest airport in 2019. And finally, Air Namibia has been placed into voluntary liquidation. Namibia's finance minister, Lupumbu Shimi, says the country's economy can no longer afford to perpetually provide financial support to Air Namibia at the expense of supporting economic growth and critical social services. Air Namibia, which employs 644 workers, is buckling under mountains of debt. The government said it would pay Air Namibia's employees the value of one year's salary over the next 12 months. And Namibia spokesperson, Doaku Kayofa. 636 employees directly will be affected and then there's an estimate of 4,500 indirect employment opportunities that will also be affected. So the fact of the matter is that uh, since the pandemic came, the airline had to stop its long-haul operation, which is to Frankfurt, Windhoek and Frankfurt, and uh, we also suspended our operation in the region. So the revenue that the airline was generating was quite small and could no longer sustain the operations. But uh, in addition to that, the airline has also been uh, having many legacy debts. There have been some bad deals that were made in the past. And unfortunately, they came to bite the airline. 
And for your financial indicators, one US dollar is trading at 380.115 Nigerian Naira, 1084 Botswana Bula, 109.20 Kenyan Shilling, and 2158 Zambian Guacha. In base currencies, the US dollar is trading at 536 Brazilian Rule, 73.49 Russian Ruble, 72.52 Indian Rupees, 645 Chinese Yuan, and at 14.50 South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 72 pence to the British pound and at 82 cents to the euro. Looking at commodity Gold is trading at $1,824 and platinum at $1,281 per ounce. While Brent crude oil is at $63.50 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Nosiche Zuma. Now let's find out what is happening in the world of sport. Fikile Lingwati is standing by with the latest. In this hour in our sports update, we're serving off with tennis news. South Africa's leading women's wheelchair tennis ace Kota Zomunjane advanced the Australian Open semi-final for the second time in her career by hammering Colombian world number eight Angelica Bennell in Melbourne. A 34-year-old produced a faultless display to thresh Bennell 6-1, 6-2 and progress to the semi-final of the Australian Open for the second time. The two, that is Kotazo, uh, uh, will be up against the her nemesis, Yui Kamiji, the two prominent women on the ITF wheelchair tennis tour, will serve up a treat of semi-final today. Zambia's premiership side, Napsa Stars, beat their Kenya counterparts Gormahia in the pre-group stage of the Kev Confederations Cup at the Nyayo Stadium in Kenya. The result means Kogalo need an improved performance and a better result if they have to reach the group stage of the continental competition. After a number of missed chances, especially in the first half, Daniela Dogo fired home to complicate Gormahia's chances of advancing to the group stage after dropping from the Champions League. Our correspondent Namuchana Likezo reports. Daniela Odoko, who plays for Napsa Football Club, managed to score the only goal in the 86th minute, uh, giving the Muhammad Fatih coast side the advantage of going into the second leg. And of course, the second leg will be played this coming weekend. And speaking to Janas in Kenya, Napsa Football Club coach Muhammad Fatih said the job is not yet done. They will need to plan for the second leg. Pakistan clinched the four-wicket victory over South Africa in the third and the final T20 International with eight balls to spare at the Gaddafi Stadium in Lahore on Sunday to clinch the series 2-1. And finally, Athletics World 3000 meter steeplechase champion Beatrice Chepkoech of Kenya broke the women's 5-kilometer world record in Monaco. In the same competition, Joshua Cheptegei of Uganda won the men's race in a new course record. Our correspondent Geshem Nyati reports. Beatrice Chepkoech broke the world 5-kilometer record 
recording 14 minutes 43 seconds despite bad weather conditions. The 29-year-old sliced one second to destroy the previous record set by Sifan Hassani, a former Ethiopian now competing for the Netherlands. Chepkoic, also a world record holder in the 3,000 meters steeplechase, did not have any of her female opponents on site when she costed to victory. Uganda's Joshua Cheptegei, a double Commonwealth Games 5,000 and 10,000 meters champion, won the men's 5-kilometer race in a new course record of 12 minutes 51 seconds. And that's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. And that uh, wraps up Africa, rise and shine. Recap, recapping our top stories uh, this hour. Former U.S. President Donald Trump acquitted in impeachment trial. South Africa's ruling ANC fails to persuade former President Jacob Zuma to appear before the State Capture Commission. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine. This hour from myself, Kumbaro Munjelere, producer Pumuzora Magadza, technical producer Sviso Masheho, and the rest of the team, thank you for listening. Taking us to the top of the hour is a song called Ekaya by Zonke. Goodbye for now. See the nation through the people's eyes See tears that flow like rivers from the skies Where it seems there are only borderlines Cries, you shall rise. Let me.